Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and uh, our returning victim this time around is uh, your friend and mine, that fellow from Cinema Psyops, Cord Psyops. How you doing, buddy? I'm your friend. Awesome. Um, You know, well, you know, for the sake of the show, for the purposes of the public face, yes. But I I just want to be your friend, Rodney. You are. It's it's good. It's fine. It's fine. Yay. I got friends. I got friends. (laughs) Well, friend. I mean, (laughs) let's not push it. (laughs) People like me, right? Sure they do. (laughs) Sure they do, Stuart. Everything's fine. (laughs) And if anybody gets the Stuart Smalley joke, I am stunned. Anyway, uh, tonight... (laughs) Well overdue is our return to the world, nay, I should say, um, the strange world of Coffin Joe. Um, The second of the uh, Coffin Joe films, Zedekai Shon returns this evening with This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. Um, Made a couple of years after the first one, 1967. And uh, this, uh, this is the middle chapter in what would eventually be a completed trilogy. Of course, there was uh, 41 years between this film and the third film, which I guess, honestly, since Embodiment of Evil being the third one, that's probably the longest gap between trilogy installments, would you think? Yeah, it almost felt like he was never going to complete it and we were just going to have two movies, although it's something that he claims he's always wanted to do. But I also feel it's kind of a George Lucasy kind of thing for Mr. Marin's where he's like, ah, let's go back to that trilogy and let's see what we can do with it. And not, <laughs> not to spoil our review of Embodiment of Evil, but I definitely feel like, unlike Lucas, he pulled it off. Uh, most assuredly, I think we talked about it before because um, when we finally got Embodiment of Evil, I think like most most people who had really enjoyed the original two, and and then all the you know the, all the other films in which he used the Coffin Joe character as you know uh, a stand-in for the Boogeyman in various and sundry ways, and you know he even had Coffin Joe kind of host an anthology horror film and things of this nature. But to get a full-blooded Coffin Joe film in what was it, two thousand eight? It was the, the. I think we all went in expecting um, Mother the of worst. Tears. <laughs> yeah, same thing. Mother you know, of Tears. Honestly, the worst. I, I can. I get. I get a fair amount of enjoyment out of Mother of Tears, but I'm never going to knock somebody for making that comparison because, yeah, exactly. If you want to talk about a step down, yeah, of course it is. 
But yeah. that is not what we got from Mr. Marin's. So yeah, I mean that's another example of a supposed trilogy of films finished several years later, but the third was a significant step down from the yeah. other two. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not saying I'm a huge fan of Inferno because I feel like there is a serious point of diminishing returns for all three of those films. The, I understand that. The highlight. Although is I have to say, superior. I am I am a huge fan of Inferno. Um, I've always felt it to be. Um, madness on the half shell it's really kind of it's it's so dreamlike that it actually loses itself at a certain time and there's a there is a uh, I think the thing that disconnects a lot of people from it is something that Suspiria didn't have which is that uh, Inferno changes central characters like three or four times and it's very difficult to maintain a um, a real narrative thread which isn't something he's necessarily going through but it's also difficult to keep the audience engaged when they're not following, you know, the adventures of whoever we're, you know, whoever we started the film with. And Suspiria breaks that for one brief period of time near the beginning of the film as well. But um, Inferno breaks it repeatedly as if there was an intent behind it. And um, I kind of think there was, but I think that's a discussion for another time. Anyway. <laughs> well, I actually have some other parallels between This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse and also Dario Argento's filmmaking. So it's it still fits into the discussion. We'll, we'll bring it back eventually. <laughs> It'll all come back around, children. All right. Um, so I think that, um, how long ago did you first see this, this film? And we, I know we talked a little bit about this, but Hey, that was months ago. So when did you first uh, watch the second of the coffin Joe films? It had actually been a bit of time between when I had seen At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul and This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. Um, I think there was probably a gap of a couple of years. I had bought that VHS tape and we already kind of had that discussion about how I found out Coffin Joe was an icon from uh, talking about a girl, talking with a girl that was from Brazil that was at the same college that uh, came along with some friends to visit me when I was watching the movie. And we kind of struck up the conversation and I found out about the other movies from her that, you know, he's done quite a few. But I hadn't seen any of them, and I couldn't find a copy of This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. It just wasn't in, you know, it wasn't really readily available for me, even, you know, at, at the I'd store that I had purchased the other tape, because I got that one used. And so I think it was probably two, I, I want to say two or three years later, but IFC had started putting them on pretty regularly. This is where, back when they did their IFC grindhouse, and they were starting to put in some independent films or some other films that were less than... Uh, the classy French films that are comedic and, you know, sex comedies or whatever that they normally would do. Um, it was right after they did the Cronenberg Christmas. So I want to say it was probably about 2000, 2001 ish. And I would have seen, um, at midnight, I'll take your soul probably about 99, 2000. So like 2001, 2002, maybe somewhere around there about two years later. And it was on IFC and I was like, Oh, cool. Neat. I caught the very end of at midnight, I'll take your soul. And immediately after, they started playing This Night, I'll Possess Your Corpse. And so I just kind of hunkered down and sat down uh, watching it uh, on cable. I think it was at my parents' house, and it might have been on like one of the breaks or something along those lines that I just happened to catch it. And that was the first time that I saw it. And it was amazing. <laughs> That's kind of cool that you came in catching the end of the previous film. And then I guess you watched the entirety of the second film because uh, this one definitely takes, I mean, this starts, you know, mere seconds after the end of the first film 
which um, I kind of love as an old <laughs> as an old Universal uh, horror film fan. Of course, I love it when you know there's some kind of bizarre continuity that I can wrap my brain around. It's that uh, it's that comic book reader uh, as a youth that loves the uh, the idea of this all being connected in some bizarre way. Of course, it also leads to conspiratorial thinking. So there's a there's a dark side to that particular blade. But the the joy of of uh, coming to it like that, where I'm you're, you're seeing the end of some film that you have no idea about, and then you're seeing the beginning of the next one. And you're like, oh, okay. So you just settled in and watched that one, huh? Yeah. Well, I had already known at midnight because I had the tape and I knew what it was that I was seeing because I caught the end of it just flipping oh. through channels on IFC. And uh, but this this is your first exposure to the sequel. And right, right. And I knew that it existed, and I didn't. Check the guide on my parents' digital cable at the time, but um, I was like, "Well, let's see what IFC has next if they're playing this," you know. And it was like right around that time, and then it just started right after this. And then after this one, they played the Awakening of the Beast. So this would have been about the time that that Coffin Joe Coffin Box set two was probably coming out on DVD, or at least the yeah. first round of that release, because IFC was pretty tied into that particular release. That I think it was Anchor Bay did that one. Uh, I can't remember who did the Coffin Box set because I bought the uh, the fan. Phantom, um, the Phantom of DVDs, and um, I still haven't. I still haven't. I mean, there's. I know Synapse has put uh, this film and uh, the first film out on DVD. They opted not to do Blu-ray simply because there's no way to get better um, materials for a, a better, you know, like a, a 2K or a 4K transfer, which is a real shame. But um, it's it's not that surprising considering that um, in some cases, uh, especially with the first film, not necessarily with this one, uh, it does look as if they 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 did things to the negative possibly that would make getting a better print um, difficult, like uh, you know, gluing things directly to the stupid things. Yeah, gluing, you can get certain special effects. It. Yeah, gluing glitter to it definitely. Well, and also because of the censorship that he faced with the first movie at midnight, I'll take your soul. I do believe that he destroyed the original negative. I think that was something that we kind of talked about, or at least pretended to have destroyed the original negative so that they couldn't force him to recut certain things, um, or, or hit it in that way or something like that. And also, he probably couldn't afford good storage to protect his negatives as yeah. other filmmakers would have been possible to be able to do so for the first two films you are correct DVD is pretty much the best you're going to get now I have the Synapse set that is all three of them on DVD and I also have Embodiment on Blu-ray because I had bought that previously before this set had been released and I have a I think it's Arrow Video did a box set overseas and it's got the most amazing Coffin Joe artwork on it and I'll, I'll post it in your group so I can show people what that artwork looks like but uh, cool. it, it's a uh, it's this really like comic booky style art and it's like elements of all of the three films for Coffin Joe, like including Embodiment of Evil has some bits in there and all of Coffin Joe's other films, just different things. Like you're going to have spiders and snakes and stuff like that on it. And so I bought that box set first and then I also bought the Synapse one because I'll be damned if I'm not going to have the best copy I can get my hands on. And I can attest that the Synapse versions, those DVDs actually have the best prints so far of the first two films anyway. Oh, I don't doubt it. I mean, Don May's going to, do his damnedest to get the best looking version of the thing out there that he can do so yeah you can always trust in don may to not scream fact you <laughs> wait do not what scream factory you <laughs> oh wait a minute wait a minute which which scream factory releases have been uh i mean i mean i, I know the problems with uh, not being able to get better looking prints of some particular nashy films and that's just the way it's going to be because 
the people who own the rights of those things. But uh, are there other ones that I should be wary of? Oh, uh, they're notorious for quality control issues of all sorts. It's not necessarily that the prints themselves are just bad. And I'm not blaming any of the Nashi releases because so far, every single one of those that I've watched from that have been immaculate and I can't complain. But the Creepshow Blu-ray has really bad problems that they just released with the 5.1. Really? Um, yeah, the 5.1 audio is screwed up on that one. Uh, the print for the Shout Select version of um, the Burbs is actually a dark overly noise reduced version of the film and it's so hard to see i actually hmm. i have multiple copies of that on blu-ray because it's my wife's favorite film and i'm trying to find the best version of it for her and unfortunately every version of it i buy i can't get rid of any of them because she loves the film that much so she wants to have them <laughs> but uh there was one that arrow video released um not too long ago where they did like a steel book of it and everything and it's pretty much the same features that the shout factory version has but their version doesn't have the noise reduction in it and it's definitely not dark and you can see things so much more and we started watching the shout select one one night and i had to switch back over to the other blu-ray because it was that bad and wow I'm, that's a shame i'm really disappointed there's plenty of other times where they claim that they get like an all-new scan and if you kind of compare them screen by screen like side by side you can yeah you can tell it's not a brand new scan it's it's exactly the same as a different release that somebody else did and it just it's sad because they they get out their hands on a lot of stuff and they're really trying but at the same time their quality control issues are just through the roof bad. Well, I got to say that um, right now, hands down, the quality control problem ch problem child is definitely universal for uh, f for fucking up the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon Blu-rays. It's just like, how do you do that? How the hell did you manage that? Yeah, the 720p for the 3D version of Revenge of the Creature and you don't even get a 3D version. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, it's yeah. like, what, what was that all about? I mean, I'm not that worried about having 3D versions of those first two films, but it's one of those things where you're just like, honestly, how did this slip through? How did you do that? I, 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 that's just, it's madness. I don't understand it at all, especially considering there there have been no problems with, you know, all of the other, you know, universal monster sets. Uh, of course, I still have the same complaint that I'll ha always have, which is, where are the other universal horror films? Why don't we have the Black Cat and and Murders in the Room Morgue and the Invisible Ray and the Raven and all those other films that just don't happen to link up inside the Frankenstein, Wolfman, Mummy, everything else kind of monster setup thing? And it's just uh, wait, okay, let me let me climb down off my <laughs> hobby horse. Sorry, well, sorry. Bringing that all back to Coffin Joe. I would actually say that This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse feels the most influenced by the Universal films, particularly the shots in this film really feel a lot like the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein with the weird Dutch angle kind of things that he kind of does. And the mm -hmm. sets themselves have that very German, uh, what's it, expressionistic? Yeah, yeah, the German expressionism, yeah. Yeah, that, that you see in a lot of uh, Wales' earlier work, too. And then some of the shot composition really reminds me of some of those earlier monster movies movies that were from Universal. He really works in black and white quite well in this film and uses it quite to his advantage. There's several shots of even Coffin Joe where he's lit underneath to make him look more sinister whenever he appears. And that really reminds me of like a Frankenstein's monster or even the way that they lit Bella Lugosi for Dracula too. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, shot composition because I think that there's, I wouldn't call it a quantum leap forward in his, um, his shot choices, but he's definitely, you know, he's learning, you know, learning as he goes. And it's not that the first Coffin Joe film was actually his first film. He'd been shooting shorts and even I think a couple of, he may have done another feature or two before the previous Coffin Joe film, but there's a, there's an improvement or a refinement to what he's doing here because he's choosing very interesting shot compositions at times. And it, it's even more impressive, honestly, when you know how, how, how hemmed in by the, you know, the, the place where they were shooting these things he was. So every time you see one of those really interesting shots that, um, you know, you know, that's, oh, that's visually, that's very interesting. He probably had to really work very hard within the limited space available to him to get, to get that. And, um, it just makes me appreciate the film that much more because he's going out of his way to, to compose some very interesting shots. And I'm not even just talking about some of the, the wilder images. I think there are times when he's framing things in a certain way that, um, wouldn't I wouldn't say necessarily make what he's doing creepier or more unnerving, but it's more an idea of properly or more intelligently presenting the visual information he wants to get across that shows that he's, you know, he's advancing as a filmmaker. Yeah, there's a lot of off-kilter shots in the way that they're kind of composed that, let's say everybody else in the frame around Coffin Joe is all standing up straight and they're all perpendicular to the screen as they should be, whereas Coffin Joe is walking and for some odd reason, he's off-kilter. There's something different about the way that he's moving and or where he's located at to where it almost seems like he's standing at a different axis than the rest of the world. He's using a lot of visualized components that are showing you how outside of the society that Joe lives in, instead of having him constantly narrate his belief structure like he did in the last film, we're visually seeing Coffin Joe be like almost 45 degrees out of phase with the rest of the world around him at all times. It's really interesting that way. Yeah. It, like I say, it seems as if he's he's advanced uh, in his visual storytelling in a, in a way that helps a lot. Yeah, we don't get, the, I mean, as much as I love the speeches in the first film, everything you need to know about Coffin Joe is internalized and given to you in visual clues with his facial expressions and the rage that he gets thrown into so much easier in the other film he contains for the most part and only really has a few attacks where he loses his shit and goes crazy once maybe twice because in this film he's more on a mission he's survived the night before that we have seen where i guess from his own hallucinations the idea that i had put forth that this wasn't you know comeuppance from the grave this film kind of puts the 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 kibosh on that and says that he had kind of done this stuff to himself or whatever he is convinced that they were fully hallucinations and the damage that was done to his face where it looked like somebody tried to tear out of his his eyes but only got the skin around it that heals up miraculously while he's got his little stay in the hospital yeah very miraculously i love the i love the whole opening few minutes of this film where we get um i won't call it an exposition dump but it is uh, it's pretty close i love the the whole where we get where we have to explain okay he's still alive uh and uh, oh by the way miraculously he's going to still be able to see and uh, oh yeah by the way uh, there was no proof of any of this stuff that he did so uh, he's not getting tossed in prison and I have to admit as <laughs> as a horror film fan it's only that third point where I kind of go oh come on well they say there's no sufficient evidence to convict him 
They right. don't specifically say that we don't have evidence. They just say they don't have sufficient evidence to convict him. And the way that he did the killings that he did, he covered his tracks really well. I mean, he burned one guy after he poked out his eyes with his fingernails. So that would have gotten rid of the evidence of the fingernail poking and the eyes with the fire. Uh, one of the ladies killed herself. So even though he was the cause of that from the rape, he didn't actually kill her. And he covered his tracks with Antonio as well. So I believe that there wasn't sufficient evidence even though the entire town knows what he did and he the, uh, back to the universal monster thing again the outrage of the town all you need is torches and pitchforks and there's several sur- shots in this film where they're like you know dealing with him and he looks like the Frankenstein's monster where he comes on screen and everybody backs up when they see him because they're like oh god what if he hurt us you know it's <laughs> it's pretty awesome the effect that Coffin Joe this little diminutive man who is like shorter than everybody even with his top hat has over the entire town where they're so afraid of him that he takes two steps forward and they all crowd back out of the way like he's got a plague or something that they could catch. <laughs> um, you mentioning the top hat and uh, I'll just mention the top hat and cape. I've always, um, you know, of course, the 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 top hat and cape um, kind of costume or, or affectation of of uh, costuming that he uses to kind of differentiate himself and set himself apart from all the other people around him. It's 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 a great visual thing, but I have to say, rewatching the film this time through, something occurred to me that had been kind of nagging at the back of my mind for a while, and it's um, I got to th- I got to thinking about well, you know, the, the whole cape and the and uh, you know, wearing that full beard. And it finally struck me is there's something about, there's something in his look that kind of reminds me of the classic and the classic visual, uh, visualization of, uh, the old, uh, character, the shadow. And it's this idea of this, uh, not that, not that I think that necessarily that's something that that's a visual motif that he may have been going for, or even a reference that he may have wanted to invoke. But I do love the idea that, you know, with that, that thick black beard kind of, you know, covering the lower part of his face, face and the 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 top hat which is you know definitely not a shadow thing but the clo- you know the cape slash cloak and the whole nine yards i just kept thinking of you know you know co- <laughs> coffin joe knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men and he hates your fucking guts you know <laughs> he is the evil that lar- lurks in the hearts of men <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah i could kind of see that influence um there's definitely we talked about kind of like comic booky feel to the way that the movies carry over where it's like find out what happens in the next issue of the horrible experiences of Coffin Joe or whatever, <laughs> you know, and we're on the next one. And uh, there's a lot of this particular movie, specifically the sequences we'll talk about later that are shot in color. But a lot of this particular film really feels more like an EC comic than even the first one because of the way that it's set up and he gets his reign over, you know, everybody around him in the town. And yeah. then he gets his comeuppance as well. There's that influence for the EC comics, but also the compositions of shots. Again, what we were talking about before, there's certain areas where it's framed off and it almost looks like he's moving between frames when he's having his various interactions as well. And it's kind of the way they did it with the sets and everything where he's inside or outside. And it's a really interesting idea too with this film. He shot all of this like in a, not necessarily a warehouse, but it was like a decommissioned church or something like that. That was a synagogue. Yeah. Synagogue. Uh, yeah. And, and he built all of the sets in there. So everything is pretty much done on a set in this film, except for, I think he said he had two days of on location shots for going in and out of buildings, stuff like that. Which is, is crazy, especially when you realize, I mean, I don't remember 
remember I don't I don't remember if I uh, ever learned exactly how many you know how many days he had to shoot this thing, but the uh, you know with, you know depending on you know depending on how he could co- coerce or coax his amateur acting you know troop into uh, working for free or for you know some kind of deferred payment, um, he could have you know stretched this out over the course of several weeks. But who the heck knows? And the the. I- I think there's an interview on the the Synops disc where he said he had 13 days to do the first one and he had like um somewhere around like 18 full reels to be able to shoot it on and the reason that that film is so short is they ran out of film to be able to make it any longer and with this one because of the success the success of the first one I think he said he had about 40 days to shoot this one oh wow or, or 43 somewhere around there and obviously he had much more film to work with and he had a bigger budget than what he had in the first film because yeah. this one comes in at like a cool hour 48 minutes and there's sequences that are filmed in color with the requisite black and white which for coffin joe's world i think his films work better for me in black and white the only time that they work in color for me is the sequence in this film and i kind of want to watch embodiment of evil in black and white and see how that turns out for me too that's an interesting idea for an experiment that would be kind of that would be intriguing although if you know i haven't watched embodiment of evil in a few years but my memory of it is that there are some very striking colorful visual things that you know he was obviously you know taking full advantage of shooting in color but uh to to back up to something you were saying there this film i'm I'm just i'm just curious this film is you know a full reel longer than the first film and um it is a pretty i i i think it's a fair criticism of this film that it may be a little too long how do you feel about that I can see that where some people would definitely have a complaint and there's certain moments where I feel it could be trimmed a little bit. And I think he may have gotten a little too overindulgent with things. But if you're saying that you want to have that whole coffin go coffin, Joe goes to hell sequence trimmed, then friendship over. Oh God, no, that's, that's to me, that is some of the most entertaining. Let's just say that that's nine minutes of pure, absolute cinema insanity and joy that I would never want to, I always, I always want to be able to pop a disc into a machine or, you know, punch a button on the, you know, heads up display floating in space before me, whatever it comes to, and to be able to see that sequence. No, no, no. that, That needs to stay around. Thank you very much. I don't think he needed to kidnap, say, six full girls in one night. I don't think we needed to see every single girl get kidnapped. But this is, again, this is a sophomore effort because even though he had shot other films before at Midnight I'll Take Your Soul, he never really got one completed. He was kind of cursed until he made at Midnight I'll Take Your Soul and and embodied Coffin Joe. And somehow Coffin Joe carried him through his career. And this film is, for all intents and purposes, a sophomore effort. And I think you'll probably find that most sophomore filmmakers, whenever they they get more money, particularly if they're independent filmmakers, they tend to get a little more overindulgent and they tend to leave more on screen for their second film than what they probably should. Oh, and, and, but, and I, I, yeah, exactly. And one of the things I always imagine is that to a degree that we can never really know without being in his position, there might be that fear that is pretty standard in making, you know, as something as complex and, and troubling as making a movie, the thought that I better, I better wedge every freaking thing that I, that I can think of in here because I may not get another shot at this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this film definitely feels like he went for everything, including the kitchen sink. Yeah. I, fe- I feel like the reason we don't get a lot of the Coffin Joe speeches where he's declaring his disdain for all of creation and everything, like the speech we get at the end of the, the first movie where he's in the cemetery and he's drinking and his guilt that he's trying to deny is still overwhelming him from his subconscious. And he's just declaring himself his God of his own domain or, or what have you. And that, you know, there, there is no God. There's no devil. There's no one that can contain him. He's responsible for his own actions. That that whole thing, I think he exercised that feeling and he he removed that that guilt and shame and everything that he was experiencing in that night. And while Zeta Coxio may not have physically died, whatever was human in him died that night. And this film is just a single driven purpose of continuing the bloodline. And we really see him just dig in and go after it. Kidnap six girls in one night with the help of his henchman, Bruno, who sure looks like his name should have been Igor. <laughs> I mean, we're back yeah, to the Frankenstein of, thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I, I did wonder, going through the film this time, I, I, actually, this question occurred for the first time, is like when we first see he has, a, you know, a trusty, a trusty henchman uh, with a creepy smile, um, my first question was, where the hell did he find this guy? <laughs> like he, he wasn't lurking around in the background of the first film. I'd remember this guy, but uh, these are all... And then, oh man, near the end of the film, he's watching this stuff take place from you know, just weirdly there are these insert shots of that character. Um, uh, I do want to call him Igor. I have to admit, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's these, an Igor. He, yeah, he's definitely an Igor, but there are yeah. these insert shots of him, you know, off, you know, peeking through foliage, watching this shit go down in the final third of the film. And I'm, I keep thinking to myself is like, um, are, you know, is he about to like, you know, bust a move here and pop some shit and you know, start, start doing things that we're not expecting. And, you know, that's, that's not really what, what occurs, but there's a, when he popped back up, uh, kind of inexplicably there in the final chunk of the film, there was that part of me that went, Oh yeah, he's been gone a while. Where'd he go? <laughs> like the character was just, we didn't need him for a while. So he's just not around. Yeah, he's not much of a helper because he only really seems to be there at certain points. And you get the feeling that he's the one that went out and did all the kidnapping for Coffin Joe because, you know, there's no way Joe could put on those black leather gloves that grabs all that stuff. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I just realized possibly he's just a part-time Igor. Yeah, there, that is a possibility. I mean, he's only really there for a few key parts of the movie. And the insert shots, I almost feel like he follows Coffin Joe almost to be like a biographer or a bear, like to bear witness. And I wonder if the film is all done from his perspective where the camera is Bruno when we're watching Coffin Joe for a good portion of Ooh, it. That would be a good, that's a good theory to go back through the film and try to see if that applies because the, um, yeah, that that is kind of an interesting idea. The, the 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 very front and centering of our main character, who is you know both the you know as as with the first film, as with all three Coffin Joe films, he's both the uh, uh, protagonist and antagonist. He he embodies both uh, everything you want to see uh, in a, in a film of this nature and everything that you dread having to you know having to watch. And um, the catalog of of violence in this film is is pretty pretty interesting. Now you know we're I think neither of us are are uh, fools enough to pretend that there's not a, a certain amount of ineptness to some of the spe- you know the, the the violent special effects some of the gore effects i mean <laughs> the, there's but there's a there's also a charm to some of that and, and then oddly enough every now and then one will ha- one will happen that actually does fool the eye really effectively and kind of weirds me out but um the nicer elements of things is like i still 
I mean, you know, there's there are easy ways to do this, but I have to admit, there's this one shot in the film where uh, this fellow, uh, just just some random character, gets an axe, gets an axe straight oh, yeah. to the forehead, and I got to say, that's in a really, I mean, I don't know how they pulled it off. I don't, I, it doesn't look like a rubber axe or anything of that nature. It looks very realistic. But then again, you know, the shot could just be, you know, they they could have done this shot, you know, quickly enough, you know, edited it cleanly enough so that you know my eye is being fooled. But like I say, for every you know moment when they drag supposedly drag a knife across someone's throat and you you know you can see it's just you know some kind of paint you know that's been painted onto their throat to simulate a a, thro- a cut uh, there was a, there's another image just like the one I'm talking about with the axe to the forehead where I'm just sitting there going oh well that one that one actually worked hold on yeah, there's a lot less of Coffin Joe, and I mentioned that earlier where he doesn't freak out as much whenever somebody's getting on his case because he's so driven to find the perfect mate for his self-confessed perfection that he thinks he is. The narcissism on this man is so much worse in this film, by the way. He is a megalomaniac. I mean, he really does think, I, I honestly, I, I, I wonder if he thinks his, his shit not only doesn't stink, but might actually suffice as food for the lesser beings he hates. Well, watching it this time around, I've, I'll confess, I've been binging It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia again. I've, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm watching the most recent season and I'm several yeah. episodes back, but yeah, I love it. But while I was watching this film, I just recently started on the 10th season because I, I kind of walked away from the show for a little bit and I've just now come back now that it's on like Hulu and stuff like that and I'm kind of going back through it. But the reason that I bring it up is the season 10 version of Dennis where you see a really dark side of him when he can't control everyone else and he starts getting violent and upset and really screaming at everyone and just really over the top and like talking about how everybody is beneath him. That stuff really reminded me with when I was watching this night, I'll possess your corpse last night before we talked about it. Coffin Joe felt like Dennis to me where I was almost like that actor could probably play Coffin Joe. And now I want to kind of see a parody <laughs> of Coffin Joe films done on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with Dennis playing him. <laughs> oh my God, that's cr- okay. What's, what's wild is I just flashed on that bizarre episode of It's Always Sunny when and uh, Charlie Day's character wrote, wrote the 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 autobiographical play. Yeah, Nightman <laughs> and Dayman. Yeah, yeah Nightman and Dayman. <laughs> and now and now all I can picture is some bizarre, you know, ineptly staged a uh, play in which in which he in which we have Coffin Joe as a character. Oh no, that's that's inappropriate but funny. I'm sorry. Somebody call Mac Dennis and uh, Charlie and get this done. Exactly. <laughs> Throw this in front of them. If this, you know, if, if this thirteenth season isn't their last, here here's an idea for free. Run with it. <laughs> oh my! One of the things I know we talked about when we talked about the previous Coffin Joe film was. Um, the weird amalgam of ideas that seem to be embodied in Coffin Joe's way of looking at the world, his philosophy. It, it's as if someone was raised a really strict Catholic and then uh, fucked himself in the head by reading Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, puberty hit. <laughs> so the person, the person I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm positing uh, is, is, a, is a sick puppy who doesn't know how to contain himself. And, and then there's this huge part of him, his intellect, which thinks that I shouldn't be forced to contain myself anyway. But I think we talked a little bit before about how I, I wonder, because both of these films without giving too, you know, without giving too much away, both, both of these first two films end up with uh, a form of comeuppance for our, uh, our hideous nasty beast. And the question to one degree or another is, is this the ending that, 
um, Mr. Marins would have preferred, or is this the ending imposed on him? I mean, remember, you know, that at this time, Brazil was, uh, you know, under a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. Theocracy. It was a theocracy. So what we're talking about here is the very real possibility that even though this this film grew out of um, the um, what is it the mouth of garbage uh, cinema movement in Brazil, there you know they still had to deal if they were going to get these things you know shown publicly, they still had to deal with the uh, you know somehow sliding this by the censorship board or the censorship people one way or another, regardless of however many trims they might have to make. Um, folding certain themes into the film, it might have been, in other words, it might have been seen as the way to save our asses and make this, get this film made if we, you know, have, you know, the bad guy suffer, die and be put, you know, be, be put, in, you know, in his rightful, uh, right, rightful place, according to general public morality. Uh, and that's how we're going to, you know, that's how we're going to get to show all this stuff. This is, this is how we're going to, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the, um, the usual exploitation filmmakers way of doing things, which is, oh, we can get away with damn near anything as long as, uh, the bad guy, you know, gets his head split open and you know, by the, the, the large sword of justice by, by the end of the film. And, um, this movie, the ending of this one really drove that home for me in a certain way, because the endings of these first two films are, are, are similar, uh, there are some interesting differences, but what I thought was odd is um, taking it face value, both the endings of both of these films, whether they mean to or not, really do reinforce the overarching, I guess, you know, Catholic nature of, you know, of, of, of you know, righteousness finally taking care of people who step outside the bounds that society sets for them, or in this case, you know, religion sets for them. That's what he's protesting against quite vociferously he's not uh, he's not specifically saying i hate brazil he's you know he's he's attacking specific religious tenets and specific religious ideas well i know for sure the way that this film ended where coffin joe almost has like this repent moment before he drowns there's a reason why you can't see his mouth when he's saying those lines because he was forced to dub that in where he's oh. begging for the cross this time and that you know there is one true god or something along those lines that was a thing that he was forced to do which makes sense yeah yeah now as far as the censorship side of things go marin's really pushed the bounds i mean we're talking 1967 in a theocratic country of brazil and he really pushed some boundaries on this film. There is an excessive amount of nudity in this film for the time frame that it's put in. And there's when there's not nudity, there's women running around in diaphanous nightgowns that leave absolutely nothing to the imagination because in the synopsis print, you can see everything. <laughs> I was you're, you're selling that you're selling that DVD pretty hard, man. Well, I noticed it last night because any other time that I'd watched the film, I'm like, oh yeah, the cute little nightgowns. This time around, I'm like, holy shit, you can see full on nips there. <laughs> <laughs> And I was not disappointed in that at all. I mean, that, that those sequences where the spiders are crawling on the ladies in their sleeve, yeah. a lot of the spiders are going across breasts, and there's just full outlines of nipples right there. You can see right through the, <laughs> the ladies' outfits. And I'm like, that's not a mistake. That was intentional. And there's a lot of eroticism going on with these creatures crawling all over these women, you know? Particularly, well, I mean, the there's that specific shot of, of somehow or another, one of those tarantulas or giant, whatever, I think they're tarantulas. I can't remember. One of them climbing between, you know, on her flesh, between the breasts of one of those women. 
Oh yeah, that was intentional. That was specific. I'm I'm positive that that was the case. And I felt again going back to what I look as the symbolism. I felt almost like the spiders represented the the Roman hands and Russian fingers of a man going over this woman's body, almost to where his spirit was feeling them out to see if they would be ideal. You know, in in you know embodied with his hands being these spiders crawling on the women, mm-hmm. and the way that they recoiled from it and were terrified by the touch of these creepy crawly things let him know that they were full of fear and they weren't for him you know i mean coffin joe is obviously a sadist in this film he is the worst kind of sadist because oh yeah he overly enjoys watching people suffer and he's also a sexual sadist so that's where i kind of got that that feeling that that's what the spiders represented was his hands crawling all over the women in a way to kind of examine their fear that way and particularly when he decides that he's going to kill the women that aren't any good he uses poisonous vipers in a pit while he's trying to make love to the woman that he selected to be his mate out of the six of them well you you bring up a good point about um, if he, if, if we're to see that's, that's an interesting idea of seeing the, the spiders as, as being a stand in for him, you know, physically violating these women himself. And, uh, may, the, the, and I, I like the idea that, cause my mind immediately leapt to the idea that the reason he might do that, use, you know, some intermediary between him and these women to test them would be that, um, if he were to do it himself, if he were to run his hands, you know, all over these women and, and, uh, you know, touch them, he might, uh, you know, lose control and have sex with them and God knows what he would create. Um, that's an interesting idea that, you know, it's like he, he wants to only have a child with the, you know, whatever, you know, the perfect, whatever he envisions as this perfect woman. And if he were to administer these tests on these women with his own hands, would he be able to control his lustful desires? Because we saw in the previous film, he's definitely not above, uh, he's definitely not above rape. I mean, he's, he's, he's a misogynist. Well, the characters, I don't know if we can call the character a misogynist. I mean, because he, he seems to be more than willing to just hate both genders. I'm sure if he could find a third gender to hate, he'd hate them as well. And the violence against women isn't, you know, it's, it's far from the only violence that this character perpetrates. It's it's violence against everybody in sight. I mean, they're really only one one type of human being that's off limits to him, and that's children. Yeah, very specifically, children are ideal because they're still innocent. They're still clay. They still have an opportunity to better themselves and become what he thinks is the ideal, regardless of whatever bloodline they came from, they can prove themselves. And there's something really... I noticed this last night while watching the film. A lot of the ideals that Coffin Joe is espousing in this film in particular about a brace of human beings that are perfect and all the stuff that he's going for really resonates as Nazism, only in his his mind, the world should be recreated in his view of what is perfect for people. And it's not a genetic thing. It's like a strength of will. And, you know, the Nietzsche thing that you brought up earlier is really kind of drives that point home where yeah. the willpower and the will to power is all that really matters with Coffin Joe. And he lets the woman live who refuses to have sex with him while he's slowly having women being poisoned by vipers in a pit right there, which is obviously a type of marital aid for him that level of screaming and suffering really got his goat going. <laughs> and like know. I say, that would, that lends more credence to my, just, you know, my sudden realization that the reason he might not want to, you know, rub his hands all over these women to test their, you know, their correctness for his project is that he might just, you know, lustfully lose control. That would be something that he would want to keep himself from indulging in. So. Yeah, because if he were to impregnate one of them, children are this 
still the possibility to be a perfect being, even though it may be an imperfect woman. And he does talk about almost soiling his bloodline or something like that with these women that they won't work. They're not perfect in his eyes. And it has nothing to do with how they look. It has nothing to do with who they are as people. It has everything to do with whether or not they have any fear. That seems to be his only criteria that if you're afraid of a spider crawling on you while you're asleep, you're not ideal. If you're afraid of me and what I may do to you because you don't pass my tests, you're not ideal. Well, I love the the criteria he used to choose these particular women at the beginning of the film in the first place, which is he, as he talks to them before, you know, he has them go to bed that evening on unknowing that they're going to be, you know, be set upon by spiders. He outlines that each one of them have demonstrated a lack of religiosity, if not outright atheism, at least, you know, a, you know, they don't attend church regularly or anything like that, which is his only outward clue that each of these women might be what he's looking for. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed that particular speech where he's going through and describing, you know, you never go to church. You specifically have said that you don't believe in God or that, you know, he's overheard conversations or he's had conversations with them. And he knows each of these women in that manner that he knows their lack of faith and actually describes it to each and every one of them. And he's like, that's why I've selected you and I feel that you're ideal. And it feels kind of strange that these women are actually charmed by that idea that the reason that they were taken is because he feels that they are above everyone else in the town or as far as ideal mates go for females. And it's almost like this instant Stockholm syndrome because he charms them, which is that what's happening or is that just what we're seeing from his deranged mind believing that they are so flattered that he would choose them? I don't know if they, I didn't get the idea that they were necessarily flattered, but I do think it was interesting that they seem to respond to being held up as um, something special because of this particular trait that they all shared. So it may have just been um, a a case of being praised for something that is often seen as uh, something outside of the normal realms of societal uh, actions. So maybe... I'm also probably reading that wrong. I mean, they, they're all non-actors. All the ladies that are in this scene at the start are obviously not professional actors. No, because they, he, he had to get them to do things that professional actors wouldn't tolerate. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so maybe they're just not delivering what it is they're trying to go for. Maybe they're all just relieved that he didn't kidnap them to immediately rape them all. And maybe they're just relieved that he wants to prove that something, that they can be better above all of that. And maybe it's just a sigh of relief that, oh my God, at least he's not going to hurt us now and we can get a night's sleep. Well, there's a couple of things I want to touch on here that I think are are very interesting. And they, they're always things, after I watch this film, as soon as I, as soon as I got to certain points in this movie, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember this question cropping up the last time I watched it. And one of them is, okay, um, we once again have Coffin Joe being cursed by one of the women that he throws into the pit of vipers. One of the women who, you know, couldn't couldn't handle having a spider crawling all over, you know, God forbid. And uh, the lack of, of his concern for... Um, this curse is, you know, typical for what, you know, he doesn't believe in this kind of idiotic garbage and it's complete. It completely does not affect him at all. He's more than willing to, you know, pretend that, you know, I'll, I'll go find the real killers. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, I, I love his, I love his fake piety about how oh, this is this is terrible and I'll uh, you know let me let me uh, everyone I'll I'll you know I myself will not rest until we find out what happened to these women. <laughs> it's just like yeah, yeah sure OJ and the. Uh, <laughs> 
I was going to go there, and then the other thing was, that sounds a lot like a politician who's been put into place to investigate his own wrongdoing. <laughs> yes, yes, or is perhaps in control of the election that'll get him in the governor's seat, yeah. yeah. But the, uh, the, 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 the thought, I, the, the thing that always crops up when I, when I watch that, uh, that sequence is he's completely unaffected by this woman's rather harsh words toward him as she's being killed in that pit where she curses him until he overhears someone talking about the fact that that particular woman was with child when he killed her. And this fucks him up. And, and you know, it, it's exactly what you'd expect because this is, you know, we, this character is well established to feel that, you know, the, the only inviolable thing in the world is children. You do not mess with children. You do not, you don't even, you, you go out of your way to make sure even accidents don't happen to children. And the um, fact that this is what penetrates his, you know, crusty outer shell and, and actually cracks, you know, cracks him open in a way that allows this, you know, rather idiotic superstitious fear to creep into his psyche is, is, is classic. And it leads to, uh, and I'm, you know, and feel free to back up because I'm about to race ahead to, it leads to this mental problem that he develops that leads to this, you know, nightmarish vision of hell that he filmed in color. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's all there on the surface. It's not as if any of this is hidden. None of this is subterranean. It's all right there in front of you. And if it's, and if, if you think it's not, then, you know, why is it in color? But the, uh, <laughs> so the, it, it takes him a realizing that he unknowingly killed a child or, un, or unknowingly, you know, did away with, uh, a, a child who would have been born if he had not done what he had done to break him a bit. Now, granted, he, 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 he is broken by this. This vision of hell does mess with him considerably, but he, he, he recovers just enough. And the only thing that allows him to recover is when his, uh, you know, his finally found paramour, Laura, uh, informs him that she's now pregnant. The roller coaster ride we watch here, this, you know, the, the, he starts off the film, you know, the most arrogant SOB you done ever seen. And <laughs> then uh, has the, you know, has the, has his legs kicked out from underneath him by this realization that he is, he has committed the one thing that he might even call a sin in the world. Um, and it's only, it's something that he can only, you know, you know, sort of put behind him or put to the side or not think about constantly because he now realizes he's very close to actually getting his, you know, his, his lifelong dream here, which is finally having a child of his own with someone who he feels is actually his equal in, you know, certain ways. This roller coaster ride, this up and down thing, this is. Well, you know, it's it's beautiful because it's classic structure and it because it's it's classic story structure because you start out one way, everything dips. There's a slight uptick, not back to the previous level. He's he's not as arrogant, he's not as sure of himself ever again for the rest of the movie. And then, um, of course, it's that fatal, fatal fear that is is baked within him, whether he wants to admit it or not. That, of course, leads to his downfall. Now, since he's never going to admit he's wrong, at least not publicly, unless he's you know flipping out and going insane and half drunk. <laughs> 
the visual, the, the vision of him as someone who now, you know, now is, you know, has this creeping self doubt, this creeping realization of a, of a, of a, of a horrible thing that he's done that he cannot fix. First two questions. One, considering the, the Catholic nature and of course the, the government in Brazil at the time, is this a, is, is his action being seen as a statement, at least in your opinion, we have no way of knowing really, is it being seen as a, uh, a statement about abortion? I don't think it is specifically a statement towards abortion. I think you could read it that way and you could definitely code what you're seeing there with his guilt that's happening from causing the death of an unborn child. But I, I don't feel that that was the specific intent. I think what it has to do with this is knowing that there was a bloodline that he has severed and that we've seen him earlier in the film go out of his way to save a child's life who would have gotten hit by a motorcycle specifically by accident. You know, he wants to make sure that he protects children and children are the thing that he feels are the most ideal of human beings because they're still capable of becoming more and they still have potential. And so knowing that he killed an unborn child, it almost amplifies that more that the potential that would have been there for a child that was born that he would go out of his way to protect. And then the offense that he created by killing an unborn child, even though it was unknowingly, therefore is that much worse. But I don't feel that it's specifically targeting abortion as a topic. I think it's more along the lines of this is just the death of a child that he caused and there's nothing more important than continuing your bloodline and continuing the life of a child and letting a child be born. Inherently, this obsession that he has with children is going to make Coffin Joe be anti-abortion to the point where he could be a Supreme Court justice right now. <laughs> yes, he could. Well, here, here's the thing. I mean, do you think, and of course we don't have an internal monologue from the character at the point, you know, certainly at any point in the film, um, because as I say, everything is on the surface, but this is, this is something I would, I would be curious to just hear the thoughts of Coffin Joe in those final few moments of this film, where does he interpret his uh, downfall in this story as stemming from that mistake, from that quote unquote, you know, for lack of a better word, sin? It's a possibility. I mean, it's definitely weighing on him and he feels guilty about it. He doesn't care that he killed six women. He doesn't care that he dissolved six women in acid. He doesn't care no. that he, he had them die in a pit of vipers so that he could get a heart on and try and make a baby. He doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't feel guilty that Bruno strangled a woman because she fought him whenever he said that Bruno could rape her. Like He doesn't care about anything yeah. about that. He doesn't feel any guilt at all. The thing that he feels guilty for is that one of them was pregnant and had an unborn child. And the more we talk about it, the more... There's definitely some discussions to be able to have about the symbolism behind a woman only being valuable as a womb factory in the eyes of the religious culture that he is raised in and also in just religions in general, how they treat women as property and dare to only make babies for men. I you know. see you've been reading my notes, sir. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's there to be coded in there. Yes, you can see that. And I'm sure that whether that was on Jose Morica's Moran's mind while he's writing the film, I don't think it's out in the out in the front. I think a lot of this is on a very subconscious artistic level where these feelings, these thoughts, these emotions are all subtext in his own mind that he may not even be aware that that's why he's writing it this way. 
I think it's just Coffin Joe has a drive to have a child. Therefore, killing an unborn child is literally the greatest sin that Coffin Joe will ever commit in his own mind. Everything else that we're interpreting, I don't think that was intentional on his part, but it's certainly we've seen subconscious storytelling take place in his films previously at Midnight I'll Take Your Soul. There's a lot of stuff where we later on learn that he was a veteran of foreign war. That was the idea that he was going to be a veteran of the First World War, but it's never specifically stated in the film. But knowing that that was on uh, Moran's mind when he was creating Coffin Joe, I wouldn't be surprised if the idea of, you know, uh, abortions as well as also uh, just trying to have birth control in any way, shape, or form, because he's raised in a predominantly Catholic country. So sex is only for procreation. Sex is never for enjoyment. So anything that inhibits procreation is automatically a sin. Yeah, that all gets pulled together here with that idea that he killed an unborn child unwittingly. Well, the, we, we, uh, we can talk all day long about the, the surface things, the, the things that are right there in your face because he's making them, he's making them overt. You can't, you can't deny or, or, or pretend that they're not there. But yeah, I, as you were just saying, the, the, I, the ideas, the things that got embedded into him in his worldview, you have to look at the society he was raised in. And so as part of that, um, there's a, I mean, we, you know, without, without beating a dead horse, cause I feel that we talked a little bit about this the last time we spoke is the idea that there's a, a level of misogyny within, uh, the structure of the Catholic church. That's, you it's know, not just Catholic, it's all religions for the most part. True, true. But we're talking specifically about the, the religion in which he was raised here. So Right. Having I just feel like we're really piling on Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. And, I, and I'm not trying. Yeah, and I'm not trying to. That's true. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not attempting to. to we're uh, only commentating you know. on what's in the film. And unfortunately, he's not taking pot shots at Muslims, folks. He's only going after the Catholics in these movies. <laughs> yeah, this is this is, you know, this is, you know, this this guy is, is not a Mormon. Sorry, but we're talking about a very specific thing here. So yeah, he's he, not he's not drinking Diet Coke in front of other people and laughing about how amazing caffeine is because he's <laughs> he was raced in Utah. That's not happening with Coffin Joe. <laughs> yes. Oh God, the prohibition of uh, the prohibition of caffeine. That just that's that's so mime. Anyway, um I do I do love uh, I I I know uh, a lot of lapsed Catholics, and one of the funniest thing in the thing, things in the world to learn is that the way the you know the the way they uh, sublimate the whole desire to drink hot liquids because they can't have coffee or tea or anything like that is apparently Mormons like consume enough hot chocolate to choke a horse, <laughs> and there's this there's this hysterical thing that the lapsed Catholics I mean the lapsed Mormons like to point out, which is that you know there's caffeine in chocolate, right? <laughs> Do they not know that they have no idea? Oh, it's just a way to work around. There's a lot of stuff that's like that, you know? I mean, everybody, if if there is something that your religion specifically forbids, somebody always finds the loophole. Like, premarital sex, that's why there's a lot of, like, evangelical girls out there that are, you know, having anal sex with their boyfriend, because that's not specifically sex. That's something different, so it's okay. Yes, it's, it's, something, it's something different that just looks a whole lot like... Anyway... <laughs> Right. Besides that point, I mean, just just to dig on as much religion as possible so that the Catholics don't feel called out and that the Catholic League doesn't call for the banning of uh, the bloody pit of Rod. <laughs> 
well, you know, we could we could spend a good 15 minutes just making fun of Mormons, but then I would just be having too much fun. We'd lose the thread of this film really hard. So, <laughs> oh, we've lost it when we got started with the episode, but let's keep trying to get it back. <laughs> let's let's try to reel this back in. So there's a there's a horrible nihilism at the center of not just this film, but the you know the character, the this dark, dark vision of the human race as something that is detestable and and perhaps, you know, the planet would be best off with, you know, not just fewer of them, but perhaps none of them is so is so horrible. I mean, he's using this extreme nihilism to to criticize all levels of society, which, you know, is great. We're talking about an exploitation film here. We're talking about a film that aspires to uh, say some, you know, really nasty but um, heartfelt, you know, think heartfelt things about the the way in which the you know writer director of this particular film feels about the world around him and uh, you know all well and good um, and of course here's here's a here's a terrible thing I mean we are you and I I know are entertained by this vision we <laughs> we, we are all right so there's a there's a point that I I kind of I, I kind of want to get to eventually which is where we have to kind of think a little bit about um, because I mean I don't know I don't know where you fall on the uh, the say one to ten nihilism scale. scale. <laughs> when I was a younger man, I, I think I fell a little closer to the uh, the uh, coffin Joe end of the spectrum, and I've, I've I think I've mellowed as I've gotten older because one of the things that experience has taught me is that most of the people around me, most of the people that I meet, are much more like me than I may have initially thought as a young, dumb, and full of cum, brain dead fuckhead. Uh, and one of the joys of getting older and realizing that, you know, most people, you know, nine out of 10 or even, you know, 98 or 99 out of a hundred are, you know, pretty much like you. I mean, they're not really, you know, that much far further from you, except in just some specific details, you know, how much they like to socialize and how, um, how they get their kicks, you know, from the world and, you know, everything else is pretty much just pretty standard. It's not that difficult to figure out, but the fact that we're being asked to look at a character here who is the embodiment of this kind of harsh nihilism, this, this way of viewing the world and the people in it as bugs, as, um, detestable things that, Honestly, the only useful thing for them is to further my own desires, further my own um, pleasures, and to allow me to find the, as you put it, clay that will allow me to fashion a better version of these pathetic, shitty, two-legged things walking around thinking they're important and smart. And he's, you know, obviously he's a villain. And the sad fact is we find him entertaining because, of course, he is a villain. Villains always are super entertaining because they're the ones doing things. They're the ones actually acting on the world and causing shit to blow up or break or, or be hideously weird or strange enough to actually pay attention to. Is the Coffin Joe character, through these first two films anyway, is he a character? Well, first of all, he's not a character that we would emulate out in the real world because we're not we're not psychopaths. I mean, they're, they're things, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to, you know, go around rounding up six or seven women and throwing them into a snake pit, at least not anymore. And the desire to do that kind of goes away as you get older and you've done it a couple of times. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't really feel the need to do it past, you know, I, the, se- the second time's really overkill. You know it while you're doing it. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> so, so. Yeah. I'm never going to collect women in a, and then throw them in a pit. That was never going to be an option for me. <laughs> Um, and I, 
I get what you're I get what you're kind of walking around here with the talk. I mean, he's nihilistic, yes, but the main dysfunction isn't that he's nihilistic because you can be nihilistic and have no hope for the future, no hope in anything and just no concern about anything at all and still be a relatively functioning human being that will not do the things that Coffin Joe does. He is mentally ill. He is psychotic. He is a burgeoning serial killer in the first movie and a full-fledged sexual sadist serial killer by the second movie. He is espousing this philosophical belief that is justifying his behavior to himself because he knows what he's doing is wrong. There's part of him that knows what he's doing is wrong. And he's subverting that and he's pushing it into his subconscious. And in this film, because he defeated the guilt the first time around in death, it's not until he is triggered by the guilt of knowing that he caused the death of an unborn child, because that is the only thing that he ever feels is salvageable in the human race as children, because they are malleable and they are clay. And so knowing that he's done that, it basically shatters, as far as I'm concerned, the entire facade of his worldview that justifies his narcissistic sexual sadist psychopathic tendencies and once that once that facade is gone that vision of hell that's not him feeling like he is being punished that is him confronting his own sexual sadism and the feelings that he has and having to come to terms with it that's why when he's in hell the last thing that he sees is a vision of satan feasting and enjoying all of this right. which is him that's that that's him basically fighting his own inner demons that's how i always interpreted it anyway when i saw that scene and it's when he comes awake from that and he realizes that he is an evil man he is not a superior being he is all he is every horrible thing he has ever heard said about him that he dismissed by saying oh you're in fear of beings you're nothing he has to come to terms with that's who he is and that's really what he is and that's you know he's not perfect he's not this amazing thing and it's not until he is told by his what would be wife i would say uh with laura that she is with his she's pregnant with his child that he realizes that despite everything else that is wrong with him his main goal that the single drive of focus that he has is procreation and continuing the bloodline and also in this film it's almost like he wants to rid the rest of the world of all other human beings and repopulate the earth as his own adam with laura at his side as his eve and maybe a few other people that will pass the test but essentially he wants to repopulate the world with a bunch of little coffin joes and spit his worldview out there and remake the whole world in his image which is serious megalomania as well and it's not until he realizes that he is everything that they say he is by causing the death of an unborn child without even asking any of the women if they were pregnant and finding out or anything like that so he's lost it here he's gone he's around the bend and the reason that he never comes back from that is he has to deal with who he is and the monster that he actually is which is why i think the space between the end of this film and the start of embodiment of evil is perfect because i feel like it takes takes that amount of time. We're talking 45 years? 40, uh, 40 or 41, yeah. Yeah, well, it's like 67, yeah, so 41. 41 years between This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse and Embodiment of Evil pass before we see Coffin Joe again. And at the end of this film, I feel like he is fundamentally broken. The feelings that he's having and all of that stuff and all of the guilt. And yeah, maybe the bodies were in the lake and maybe the, the corpses did rise and that's how he was finally able to be caught and convicted and everything. And we see him go under the water and somewhat drown. But really, he's drowning in his own sorrow and his own guilt for realizing 
realizing who he actually is and having to come to terms with the fact that he is every bit as flawed, every bit as weak, and every bit as disgusting as every other human being on the face of this earth. And I think it takes him a long goddamn time to come back there's from a, that. There's a part of me that wonders if he, after this, reevaluated and realized, not that he doesn't, you know, do, you know, go all the way back to his original worldview, but maybe that that empathic part of a human being that realizes that all these horrible things that I realize that are true about myself, well, they're also true of others. And that's why I should be concerned with all these other people because they make they make similar, if not identical mistakes. But of course, we're, we're talking about a fictional character being being used to make a specific point. So trying to read some kind of character growth or personal, a personal exploration of a philosophy that sees outside of the vision that he has for the world around him is probably not uh, is probably not going to save us. You know, we can save ourselves a lot of trouble by walking away from that and being pretty confident that that's not what we're looking at. But the <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, with your normal everyday run of the mill, like Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees or any other psychopathic killer in a horror film, I would say absolutely. But Coffin Joe is a complex, seriously mentally divergent character who is rife with all sorts of psychological disorders that you could unpack with a psychologist for days in a discussion and really kind of look at what it are, what, what his motivations actually are, which makes him fundamentally more human than any other kind of evil villain type character that we would see because he is deeply flawed. And I feel like he's, he has a realization of it almost like someone sees the damage that they caused. And for once experiences what it's like to feel guilt, even though they have no emotion so, because they're psychotic. Well, guilt is something we see him experience the shock of real, the realization what he's done and the the overwhelming guilt that he begins to experience after that is what kind of, you know, it, it almost, I would say, you know, how do you phrase this? Did it wake him up from his own delusions or did it uh, uh, cause him the psychotic break? Because it's right after this where we get the, you know, the, the very colorful vision, you know, this nine minute hell sequence where you're right. I mean, we, we you know, talk, talk about, uh, you know, male and female nudity galore and just, you know, every type of hideous thing that he can imagine on his budget to put into this sequence. This is the, it, it, okay. One, one good description of this film might be that it's a vision inside, um, someone else's nightmares and never is it more obvious than that hell sequence because no one had ever envisioned hell in this way whatsoever. I mean, this is a hell in which it snows. Okay. And the candy colored, the lighting, the, the greens and the reds and the, the, the bizarre way. Okay. Here, here, here's a funny thing. Here's, here's an aside. So, uh, Coffin Joe Marin, you know, Jose, Jose Marins is walking around in this, you know, this hideous place in there. Uh, he's barefoot and he's walking around like it pains him. Like he's, he's, he's like, like he's in agony. He's just, he's twitching and weird. And it was so bizarre to find out that one of the reasons he may have been twitching is that all the stuff that they'd rigged up in those, in the flooring and the walls, uh, the, he and the other actors were occasionally getting little electric shocks. So he's walking around barefoot on this stuff. Yeah. I thought it might, I thought that perhaps it was, uh, either uh, a weird choice to give, you know, to give his movements within this hell sequence, a very strange, you know, a strange visual look, 
but uh, it, it turns out that he's actually, you know, he's not just dodging people's heads that are on the floor. He's actually occasionally getting a shock through his feet. Yeah, I remember hearing in the interview that I watched after the film, um, he had said that he had messed up something either in the wiring or the way that he had set up with all of the dry ice and the machines that were blowing the snow around, which by the way, the snow is made out of ripped up popcorn yeah. because that was the cheapest thing that he could do, which is amazing. When you watch that film and realize the snow is ripped it up popcorn. It looks great. Yeah, it looks amazing. Uh, there's a few things that I feel were influences, or at least um, I can kind of see a similar vein of artistic expression for A Vision of Hell that I see in this film that I've seen in other things as well. First of all, the lighting, it really, this is what we were talking about before, but this feels like a four-color comic look at a world. And the only way that they can show you how otherworldly and different it is than what you're used to is these very stark, very bright, very contrasty colors laid over top of each other. Like you get in the four color comics, you know, with the CYMK kind of scale of hues of like magenta and all of that kind of crazy shit that they put in there. But it also reminds me of the lighting that you would see later on that was influenced by that kind of comic comic color art. Whether well, I always refer to it as creep show lighting because of the stark colors and contrast, which can be traced back to like a Dario Argento kind of thing where he was doing that with Suspiria with the very stark colors as well. I told you we'd come back to that, which I feel what he experimented with in Suspiria, he perfected with the light by the time he had made Inferno and then experimented with it more, but I feel it was at its best at Inferno with that stark lighting and, and contrasty colors and just weird reds and greens for no reason yeah, yeah. hues. And the reason it was done in Creepshow is because Romero was trying to emulate the EC comics and the four-color comics that would just throw up those weird color backgrounds and why even try and explain it? It's just supernatural. Here's a splash of magenta, you know, for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like if Marenz had been a comic book fan, if that's what he was going for for that artwork and that that style and that's what he's putting there i almost feel like i should stop referring to it as creep show lighting when i see that in other horror movies or comic book influence stuff and i feel like i should start calling it at midnight i'll possess or this night i'll possess your corpse hell sequence lighting but that's too long so i'll go back to creep show lighting <laughs> you could just call it coffin joe lighting yeah, Coffin Joe style lighting. But then again, most of his stuff is in black and white. And now that you kind of mentioned it earlier too, just to kind of bring it back to the stark colors and embodiment of evil, it's almost like the hell world that he experienced in this hallucination that is the embodiment of his guilt. It feels like it takes him the 41 odd years to embrace it. But by the time we're in the movie, the hell that he saw in that vision when we get to embodiment of evil is the hell that he brings everybody else to so that he can find the perfect mate to bring his child 41 years years later. Well, I think we may have discussed a little bit of this in the previous episode we did together, but I'm fascinated every time I watch a Coffin Joe film with his concept of immortality because I for for years one of the things that occurred again and again to me because is you know and this is keyed because of the callbacks and the visual things that remind me of the classic universal horror films is um is Coffin Joe kind of this bizarre you know twisted mirror version of you know funhouse mirror version of a vampire because he's so obsessed with the continuity of the blood and and immortality and uh, of course, really, it, it, it seems clear to me now that what this this whole immortality thing and his desire to uh, to have a to have a child born from a perfect woman is really an inversion of and a perversion of the the basic tenet of you know the, of belief within the Christian religion, the whole vir 
virgin birth, the you know the birth of a perfect child, and the uh, the idea that you know combined with the rather you know bizarre Nietzschean Superman ideal, which is the idea of of putting a uh, of, of finding a way to create. Uh, you know, a, a perfect human being, and the idea of the immortality of the blood and trying to to maintain his own bloodline into the future. Uh, this is this seems to be a bizarre melding of a man who is intelligent enough to see that the only way in which you can uh, attain immortality is through your children, is through the continuing of your genetic, you know, markers, your your DNA into the next generation and there, you know, hopefully into the generation after that and so on. But it's so, uh, it's so much blended with this perverse idea of uh, blending immortality with a constant conversation about bloodlines that it make it, it, it again and again calls to mind for me, at least because I'm, you know, an old horror movie nut, the idea of vampirism as this sick perversion of religion uh, religion's promise of immortality, I should say. So, well, oh, I'm sorry. There is, there is a lot of that stuff that is going on with what Coffin Joe is saying. Now, his obsession with blood in the bloodline and the continuity of the bloodline, I feel is more along the lines of this particular culture of family. The, the, the purpose of a father passes down his trade to his son, and then the son passes the trade down to the grandson of the original father. And you basically continue doing everything that you've done in the family. And so a family line that is known for smithing will become known as Smith. A family line that's known for fixing things, you know, or thatching roofs, if you will, will be Thatchers. You know, that's kind of the history that we've had as human beings that, you know, you're a family that's been shoemakers forever. So now you're cobbler or your name is shoemaker. You know, it's it's kind of a thing that has been going on in our history. And I feel like what Coffin Joe is trying to do with his continuity of the bloodline is no one else deserves to have their family history continue. And it's not so much just him specifically, but his immortality is literally remaking the world and his image and his ideals so that the world will continue to go on and the rest of the world will be his bloodline in one way, shape, or form or another. So it's it's not just his ancestors that he's concerned with. He really wants to shape the rest of the world. Like, he let that woman live. He won't breed with her, but she can now have children with another man as long as she can continue to live without fear because she will meet the ideal and the criteria. I almost wish that we could have seen a thing with the embodiment of evil where he ends up shaping everybody else where he has almost like a cult of people that follow him. I mean, we get that a little bit because budget restrictions, but the idea is he gets his, you know, he gets what he wants, but he also has a group of followers who are also believing and he kind of creates his own religion, like this cult of Zay, if you will, that just, continues his work because he knows he has short time left. I really like that that concept and that idea more so than it's just, you know, it starts out he wants a child because he wants to continue bloodline with immortality. But in this film, it really feels like he wants to remake the world in his image, you know, which again, inverting it from everything that he's been taught from Catholicism and the way that God made the world. And he is the ultimate embodiment of everything that is the adversary to faith, particularly the faith he was raised in of Catholicism. Yes, yes. You, you took several of my 
my words right out of my mouth. Once again, reading my damn notes. Uh, the, <laughs> I just think that our thoughts line up on these films, which is why I'm so glad that we're discussing them together. It, yes, it, it's good to to mold them together into one into one uh, large Plato-like thing and squish it out in star shape and make us uh, make us both happy. So, uh, the continuity of the podcast, Rod, is important. <laughs> It's the bloodline of the podcast. Uh, we will all, we'll, we'll both come out the far end of this feeling uh, much drained and probably cursed. So, <laughs> yeah, well, get in line. I've got so many curses on me, particularly from podcasting. Oh, you got some fresh ones? I guess we did. I mean, you know, we're 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 past Halloween now, so I guess I guess you probably do have a few fresh curses, don't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> have to bathe in sea salt and uh, scrub in the tears of infants for a couple of months, and then I might be able to remove some of, some them. of them. Some of them. Yeah, not all of them. Some of them are just death curses. Um, an odd little aside. Um, let's take the point of view of someone who is in Brazil in 1967 or 68, and they see this film. What would they consider, from their perspective, to be the real sin of Coffin Joe? Because from my point of view, uh, you know, as a modern, you know, 21st century person who did not grow up in that country or that society, his fatal flaw is his egotism. But I often wonder what if that would be true, essentially, of someone in his native country at the time the film was made. Would they see his egotism as his fatal flaw, or is it his anti-religious stance, or is it his? Um, you know, his violent nature, or is it his nihilistic view, or his hatred of the human race? What, in other words, what, how would I, I try to wonder? I try to think. What, what would they, what would they see as his fatal flaw? It depends upon how religious they are as a person, but let's say that they're your average churchgoer who wants to go out to the cinema and is deciding to stretch out and watch something a little more transgressive because they've heard all this particular Coffin Joe film has some boobies in it if you really look, so they want to go check it out. It has right? some boobies in it even if you don't want to look in that hell sequence. I mean, it's covered in you know some kind of plaster, but hey. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, you, you hear it's an experience you're never going to get before. And let's say it's around the right time of year where, you know, Day of the Dead or whatever's happening and you want to get a little spoopy on. You want to you want to be scared or something. You go to check out this film. And if you're of that mindset where you are a religious person, the way that Coffin Joe is behaving, I think everything that you described about all these different types of flaws can be distilled down to he's a man trying to live without the Catholic version of God. And therefore, everything else that is wrong with him is a symptom of his disdain and hatred for God. And I don't think that your average religious person of that faith in that particular country is going to look past that and see any other flaws other than you need to get right with Jesus. I think that's all they're going to see. The reason that you and I see so many other things besides of that is because we are not religious. If you took your average filmgoer from Brazil that may not be influenced in religion and may actually like this kind of spooky, weird, creepy movie stuff just because they're like us, maybe they read a lot of comic books and they you know their own minds are a little warped and they just want to see something a little different and kind of shocking they go in and see this film and the fatal flaw that they're going to see with coffin joe i think is the same ones that we're describing the egotism the nihilism the narcissism and really the that kind of stuff i can deal with with a person it's when he starts moving into homicide and rape and yeah. torturing of other human beings that he's using these other things to justify because he says they're not even you know they're so beneath him so that's completely okay for him to do that, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, caterpillars are below me, but I'm not torturing them for my pleasure. 
at least not right now. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, no, I'm busy. We're talking on the phone, and it's almost winter. There's no caterpillars out there. No, it's just not something that I do. I'm not going to torture a lowly being just because I can. You know, you don't just kill something just because you can. You either do it because it's trying to kill you, or because you want to eat it and it's food. Agreed. Agreed. And the the nature of the way he views the world. Um, I find it interesting this the 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 splitting of of what he's willing to what he's willing to direct his ire toward and what he just ignores. Um, the fact that he's more than willing to badmouth uh, or uh, trick and 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 uh, steal from. Uh, and even set up for murder, you know, uh, other people who granted at the time he, he has a reason to get these people out of his way. The, 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 the efficiency with which he's able to do this and the, uh, uh, glee he takes in doing it. I mean, yeah, of course he's, he's, you know, he's a sadist. Of course, that's, that's something the movie establishes repeatedly. And that's just another instance, instance of it. But the competence level that he shows, uh, is the, the, you know, it shows a level of practice at these particular types of, of things that makes you kind of concerned that, um, it's a chicken and egg question is what I'm getting at. In other words, did, did his violence and sadism give birth to his worldview or did his worldview give birth to the sex, you know, the violence of sadism? And it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a question you're never going to answer because as we see this character in full flower, there's no real way to tease those two things apart, but it becomes a question of, uh, uh, it's 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 a variation on the old heredity versus environment thing, which is you know which came first. Do are we talking about uh, a person who was you know born twisted? There's you know there's something actually physically wrong with the chemistry in this person's head, and this is the the end result. Or is this and you know th- this is where you get into the question of which is which is scarier? Was this person born with this problem that led them down this road, or did the world twist them? In into this position of seeing the world in this way. In other words, is this a unique individual that, you know, just, you know, a freak, a mutant perhaps, or is this just a, uh, an outgrowth of a society that unfortunately by the way in which it's built is going to occasionally cast off something like this. that's going to create a creature of this type. Well, I get the feeling that, at least in Joe's case, we see in the first film at Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul, he has friends. He has what looks like a relatively normal life, even though he has this nihilism and this disdain for his fellow man. He looks down on everyone and it just grows and grows and grows. And the longer he is attempting to continue his bloodline, which is his singular vision and the only thing that he cares about, the more his humanity falls by the wayside and the more he continues to fail at his mission, the more driven he is and the more justifying he needs for the horrible actions that he's doing to make this happen to the point where whatever urges, whatever wickedness and evil he has in him is amplified in this film to beyond all, beyond all justification other than what he comes up with that they're beneath him or they're not human. I think he had those tendencies. I think they were always there. 
He certainly loves indulging in violence against people, and I think it's just harder and harder for him to enjoy that level of violence. He can't enjoy smacking around a man anymore. He's raped a woman to try and have a child with her against her will. She dies, and he realizes he likes to sexually harm people. He likes to cause pain, and that gets him off. I think he discovers that about himself in the first movie. And so with the guilt that's driving him forward that ends up carrying over from the cemetery sequence where he nearly destroys himself and kills himself there by his hallucinations and trying to ward them off, he's so emboldened by the time he gets out of the hospital and is healed that he has little bit of time and so little a time to do what he needs to do that he grabs six women at once and he justifies it by saying that he's trying to increase the odds he's got to get this done and then when that woman fails another one kind of comes along which is Laura that we end up seeing and she's every bit as dark and twisted as him without even knowing what his worldview is she matches it perfectly and I mean he's interrogating her with a razor to her throat that's clearly cutting her skin and she seems like the perfect sexual masochist she actually seems like she is is sexually enjoying having him hold the razor to her throat because she feels the same way, but in a way she is subjugating herself to him almost automatically, and they have this sadomasochistic sexual thing back and forth, which in his mind is like the perfect relationship of master and servant, you know? Maybe they switch hit, maybe sometimes she doms and he subs, who knows? Who knows? I, I don't want <laughs> don't want to really get into their bedroom stuff because, you yes, know, Coffin yes, Joe do. creeps yes, me Yes, you out. do. Yes, you do. Yes, I do, but that's only because Laura's a very lovely lady and I would like to steal her from Coffin Joe, but that's not the For point. For at least a night. <laughs> no, because I'm sure he will come at me and I really don't want to lose my eyes to his fingernails. Good point there. Now, <laughs> when you, now that you brought up Laura, I'd like to, I'd like to ask a question that, um, like I said, I don't think occurred to me until this viewing of the film. Um, she does seem to be the perfect mate for him. And one of the questions the film doesn't answer, and I kind of wish it, it hinted in one direction or the other, is she so quickly falls into his orbit. It seems as if perhaps she knew about him well beforehand and was just biding her time to get her shot to be near him. Uh, the film does not make anything like that clear, uh, which is a little frustrating, to be honest. But did you get that sense at all? If she did not know about him, I'm sure that when she hit town and discovered him, someone was probably trying to talk her away and discourage her. Like, maybe she likes the gothy top hat and cape look that he has going on, so she's intrigued. And then her girlfriend's like, no, you need to stay away from that guy. He did this, he did this. We suspect that he did this. He's horrible person and all these horrible things happened and i get the feeling that laura had the tendencies ahead of time before that so maybe she didn't know before she hit town that he was who he is but hearing the rumors about him and then having him be interested in her if she has that same type of mental state that he does which she clearly does when he says meet me at midnight at this particular place she's more than eager to do it because they align their their desires and their needs are exactly the same it just so happens that she perfectly matches his sadism with her own masochism. Although she's a bit sadistic too, she revels in the pain and suffering of others. And she automatically says things like his guilt that he has for killing the child unwittingly. She specifically says it would have been born an inferior being. Do not trouble yourself, my love, or something along those lines. To the point where she almost seems more psychotic. Than or him. she is really the perfect mate and is willing to say the thing out loud that will allow him to, you know, reassemble his personality. Um, it's 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 an intriguing relationship that I that. I honestly, even though I feel the film could be a little shorter, 
I wish the film had explored a little bit more, but I suspect the reason there's not a, a, a more detailed exploration of that relationship is I really sadly don't think the actress who plays Laura is, I mean, I don't think she's particularly good. And I, I think that any kind, I think that limiting her screen time was probably something that uh, he, if he didn't plan to do it, I think he probably had to end up doing one way or another because I just don't think she has the acting chops to pull off kind of what I'm wishing was there. And it may have also been when he did the script initially, he just wanted a woman who would be ideal for what Coffin Joe needed to propel the story forward and make him think that, hey, I'm going to have a child. This woman is perfect. I'm getting everything I want so that when he gets the comeuppance and loses everything, it's all there. And perhaps the relationship they had and the justification and discussions that, that we do get to see, perhaps he didn't explore it more just because it was just a shorthand to get us where we needed to go. But it's all implied there. And I don't think she's a terrible actress i just feel like she is pushing too hard she's a bit of an over actor she's like uh oh gosh what is that she was in a couple of roger corman's films she was in switchblade sisters oh and she was the leader of the gang billy i know uh, who you're talking about yeah but that particular she wasn't necessarily a bad actress she was just too overzealous with delivering her lines yeah and i feel i'm remind laura reminds me of that actress who did all of her talking through her teeth all the time (laughs) she was projecting to the back to the back row yeah Yeah, she may have been a theatrical actress and this was her first chance at a film and maybe she didn't know to dial it down a notch or something for the particular actress who plays Laura. Because there's some moments where, with her face at least, she is conveying a hell of a lot of emotion more so than some of the other actresses or even actors that are in the film. So, I don't know. I I don't think she's a bad actress. I feel she's just projecting a little too much. Well, no, here's a a question that I I wanted to save till right about now, which is uh, earlier, uh, I think actually the last time we talked about these movies, you made mention that of the three, this is your favorite of the Coffin Joe films. Now, I'm not willing to commit myself because I haven't. It's been a, it's been years since I watched Embodiment of Evil, and I don't want to commit to what I think would be the best of the three until a more recent viewing of that film. But uh, you have said outright that this is your favorite of the three. Um, I'm not going to ask you to defend yourself because that would be ridiculous. But why? Why is this one your favorite? The eight-minute hell sequence is something in cinema I have not seen before, and I've not seen its like for that level of budget since. It is a monumental achievement that I cannot even describe how effective it is for me, and it never lessens its effect. Every time I see that, I'm just mesmerized and completely in love with it, and I just wish that this man would have gotten discovered and been able to express himself with more money and in a world that would not have constrained him and held him back because by the time we get to embodiment of evil when he actually does achieve that he's older and his lack of drive kind of shows a little bit more in that film i think i'm not saying that it's a bad film it just is a bit of a step down and the promise that's in this film for the longest time before we even got embodiment of evil just felt like my god i can't wait for the third i want this man to make a third oh if only that could happen and it's all here in this film like it this is the pinnacle for me of everything that he's ever made because of that we talked about it the shot composition and everything like that and i know that it's over long for some folks and i'm not going to argue that point but when i watched this last night i never felt a minute of the hour and 48 minute runtime it didn't 
it just engrosses me so much. And there's not a moment where I'm like, okay, come on, let's move on. Because by the time I get to that point in a sequence, we're off to another thing. And it just feels to me that this film and At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul could be recut together and turned into two films that are about an hour and 40 minutes, you know, really, really well. Like where you kind of create two separate films that really tie in together with the cemetery scene, but you go a little bit further and maybe split them a little bit, you know, further on in this film and kind of move things around a little bit. And I really, I just, I don't know, there's something about the specific hell sequence, the visions that he has in this film, the the sequences of him doing these weird experiments and torture that recall the sort of, you know, 1940s universal horror films, particularly like the, the off-brand ones that weren't like a Frankenstein's monster and all of that, where you would see this kind of level of sadism, like the black cat that we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of what Boris Karloff was pulling off on Bela Lugosi and the tortures and things that he did is that satanic architect in the black cat that's definitely here. Yes, you know? definitely. I mean, it's just this weird amalgamation of all of these different influences just thrown together and baked into a beautiful souffle of a film that I just can't get enough of. And I, I, it just resonates with me so much more than any of the other three. Now, when we watched Embodiment of Evil for this little experiment of ours, who knows, maybe I'll have a complete turnaround, but it was a little bit of a letdown after this film for me. Well, I think that um, the reason Embodiment of Evil struck me as being such an impressive film was I, it was that, although I agree with you that his energy level is low. Uh, less impressive, you know, 41 years after this particular film we're talking about tonight. But I think that the film, to my memory, more than makes up with it in its, um, let's just say cleverness. We've got four more decades of experience and how to present these ideas and present this character and to just how, you know, how to make a film just that. And I think that the, I think the experience possibly for me, and I won't know this for sure until I review, you know, until I go back and rewatch the film offsets what I, I also perceive as a, a lack of energy, uh, you know, a man, you know, four decades past this particular moment in his career. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying I disagree with you because I don't have a leg to stand on not having watched the third one in a number of years, but uh, I can see the very strong. I mean, yes, I think that this one may be a little better than the first one, and certainly technically better. And he seems to have refined his uh, his approach to the material, not just uh, you know in becoming a, a better technical filmmaker, but also uh, of having of having had you know more time to think about the themes that he's trying to get across. So you know that that shows very effectively. That shows really well in this. And you know I, I like both of these movies, and there's a a certain sick joy in watching them and realizing. Well, I should back up because. I don't watch these movies with an eye toward feeling superior to the ideas being expressed within them because depending on what point in my life you talk to me, I shared some of these ideas. I shared some of the beliefs that this character expresses. And I think that my, at this point in my life, I, I look back on that and I'm a little ashamed that my worldview was so hideously jaundiced and, and it, to my mind, short-sighted that my vision of the world could look like this, you know, sadistic bastards way of looking at things. 
But at the same time, there's an allure that I think comes out stronger in this film than the first one. An allure of that worldview, of that vision, um, mainly because, you know, as we said earlier, it's entertaining. Uh, it, it really is. There's something about watching a guy do shit, do things, move the, you know, move the story forward, even if it's uh, in a way that, you know, you can, you can see the seams on. You know, I think the, the seams show a little bit more in that first film than in this one. But there there's a... Uh, a certain um, rawness to this movie. And some of the, some of the rawness works. Some of it doesn't. I think some of the, you know, some of the acting is subpar, but that doesn't, you know, that's not going to cripple a film. I mean, if you're a horror film fan and you're going to complain about acting and that's going to be a major detriment to your enjoyment of a horror film, then you, you probably need to, you know, move into another realm of film to make your life a lot easier from <laughs> now on. But the, those seems still, you know, are still visible. Those, those, uh, let's call them, let's call them flaws. I mean, that's what they are. The, the joys of this kind of thing though, and of these two specific films, because the, these are, these are of a piece. I mean, maybe within a few years of each other with a huge gap before the third one, they're, they're of one type. So they can kind of be seen. I like your idea. I, th- I thought you were going to suggest uh, some kind of uh, insane supercut of the two films, but I, I like the idea of uh, a judicious editing and finding a midpoint to make both films kind of roughly the same length. I like that idea a little bit better. But the um, the idea of these... Well, I'm not opposed to a supercut. I just know that if someone's complaining about the length of the first or the second movie, then a supercut would be dead out for them. So that's why I didn't... Yeah, but, yeah fine point there, sir. But the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, and understand the reasons that um, it's not, you know, the the actual minute, um, minute, you know, the the minute count that that uh, draws draws my you know raised eyebrow on this particular film. It's that I feel that there are uh, a few scenes that could either be shorter or are a little redundant and unnecessary. Um, I, I originally went into this viewing of the film. I'll be completely honest with my memory of uh, one particular subplot being something that the last time I watched it, I thought could just be eliminated completely. But now having rewatched it just in the past few days, I would say, no, 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 the film benefits from it. And that's the, um, that's the subplot of, of, um, uh, coffin Joe, uh, setting up a poker game with a particular character so that he can, uh, take, you know, so that he can take his, uh, so that he can kind of take him for all this money that he's, um, uh, he doesn't really have, and then set him up to be the fall guy for a murder that coffin Joe intends to commit. This is, uh, I, when I went into this, my vision, my vision of the film was that that was an unnecessary thing and just, uh, an unnecessary complication that kind of ran up the 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 runtime of this film. But honestly, looking at it now, I I feel that it's much more justified part of the film than my memory told me it was. So my my the edits I would make would be you know a you know, little bit here, a little bit there, and uh, I would try to keep everything but just make it a little tighter. Which um, well, his torture sequences specifically could be tightened up quite a bit because they really go a bit overboard and establishing the machinations that he has for lowering a brick onto someone's head or a large fucking stone to crush their head. Yeah. <laughs> and the the ladies uh, in the pit with the snakes coming up over top of them. If there wasn't a lovemaking scene over top of that, that would be extremely overlong and boring. But the sheer depravity of him doing this specifically to get off and make a child with the cruelty in the background just covers that so well that you're like, ugh, you horrible human being. <laughs> Oh, should I be laughing at that? Yeah, I guess, man, I'm, I'm safe. I'm safe to laugh at that, I think. Okay. <laughs> so until we get to Embodiment of Evil, I guess we'll have to we'll have to kind of leave the discussion of the three films and their relative qualities there. 
Yeah, we but, can probably rank them as part of Embodiment of Evil because then we're done with the original three. And yeah. I feel like that's the logical conclusion to kind of see which ones we feel are the better films, see which ones we enjoy more, see if our estimations have changed with these more scholarly viewings. And it might not be a bad idea, depending upon how long it takes before we get to Embodiment of Evil, to revisit them all. I too. think it's a good idea. And I do think that you know, we've had a few requests from uh, listeners to tackle a few of the non-Coffin Joe uh, Jose Marin's films. And I'm not averse to that at all. I'm wondering, um, do you think we should do these chronologically or should we just, you know, next time out, you know, in the next few months, should we just go ahead and leap to embodiment of evil and then back up? I think the original initially planned trilogy that he was able to complete, we should definitely do those three. And then if we're going to do the other films, we should probably start pairing them up and going in order because some of the other films are, you know, kind of piecemeal and anthology type series things where we could probably pair a couple of things together like with the other films but we definitely need to complete the original trilogy first because they are the easiest to access because of the synapse collection i mean that's probably the least expensive way to dive into the world of coffin joe and if you want to expand your search from there and really dig into some of his other films then you're gonna look at probably importing the anchor bay or not anchor bay but the arrow video dvd set that was released a couple of years ago and i don't even know if that's still out there or you may end up having to go to something weird video and start grabbing some of their uh, duped from VHS to DVD copies. <laughs> Whichever way you can find these, if you're at the least bit curious about these movies, um, then it's a good idea to... I think I think these are the perfect example of films that it's good to revisit, reg- regardless of your initial reaction to them. I think it's good to revisit these movies uh, the older you get, because um, they present a worldview that, from your perspective, it's been my experience. You, you change the way you think about a lot of these things. And like I say, none of this is beneath the surface. Some of it does work beneath the surface, but the ideas are very much right there in your face. And I think, you know, the reasons you watch a film like this when you're 20 are very different than the reasons you watch it when you're 40. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm coming of age right now where I'm just under 40. I'm 39 now. And watching these films in this era of my life where I'm starting to move into the, like the middle age bracket, if you will, and I'm no longer a demographic of interest for buying things to be advertised to, my worldview of this stuff is very different than when I watched this in my 20s. The younger, angrier version of Court that didn't believe in anything and hated the idea of love and hated people and wanted to smash everything, thought that Coffin Joe was the ideal. The way that he just went insane. The only problem I had with Coffin Joe is that he liked children. Everything else I could get behind. (laughs) You know? And now, years and years later, after having found someone that made me a better person and developing empathy and realizing that other people have emotions and seeing the value of other human beings, my views on Coffin Joe are significantly different, as we've discussed, you know, and, and what I see in him and what I feel. And I realize that sometimes... Someone that is proposed to be an anti-hero is not someone that you should actually hold up to be a hero at all. There's a reason why the anti is put in front of hero. Sure, they can be your protagonist and you can follow them, but you shouldn't hold someone like this or a Walter White or even the Punisher up as the ideal, you know, hero that you want to follow. Because they're not a hero. They're a horrible human being who is also a murdering bastard. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but that's the, that's the and, and it's incredibly entertaining to watch these people, but the, the horror of them is that we can watch Saul Goodman descend into a hell of his own making because it's entertaining, but you wouldn't want to be anywhere near this guy. 
<laughs> no, because everything he touches turns to shit eventually, and it's all in the pursuit of money. You yep. know, I mean, these are all characters, and we're, I'm talking about anti-heroes that I personally love, including Saul Goodman, you know, Walter White and Breaking Bad, following him through that entire series and watching him devolve into a horrible human being. I loved watching it because he continued to shock me. He continued to make me question why I would want to root for a man that was willing to do the things that he does. And with Saul Goodman, you f- completely love him at the start of that series is Jimmy yeah. and you're rooting for him and you want him to be able to pull out and make something of himself and kind of come out and do what he needs to do but all the while you're also rooting for him to become the Saul character that you love for being the scumbag that he is that was entertaining and so you're rooting for the downfall of another human being and it's this weird juxtaposition of watching this kind of thing now with with Coffin Joe he's already fallen he's already damned he's already doomed to be this monster that he is by the way by the way I think you just put your finger on I've, I've talked a little bit about this uh not on the show but just in real life about why i find better call saul so entertaining because it's an inversion of what happened in breaking bad in breaking bad you watched a good man become a monster and in better call saul we we are watching a man who was a monster all along and we knew it because this is a prequel we already knew this and the, the setup of the show of Better Call Saul is you, whether you realize it or not, internally hoping that he doesn't become the monster that you already know he's going to be. And I think that is I think that's one of the reasons why this Better Call Saul is an even harder trick to pull than Breaking Bad was. In other words, the, the creators set themselves a tougher job by telling you up front, no, this guy's a monster. No, you already know he's a monster. You you have seen it. But you're going to hope against hope that he perseveres, that he does not become that horrible, horrible person that you already know he's going to become. And you're going to be fascinated hoping the entire time that it will turn out differently than you already know that it will. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's fascinating. But sorry, back to Coffin Joe. Yeah, but the thing with Coffin Joe is even right from the start when we first are introduced to him in the first film, he's already doomed, he's already damned himself. And I don't mean in a hell, heaven kind of sense. I mean, as a human being, as a thinking, feeling, breathing human being, he is already gone by the time we're introduced to him. And we watch him devolve into something worse and worse and worse. And it just keeps getting further down into degradation and violence and hate. And the more he feels fails at his only single-minded goal of creating an heir for all of his worldview to continue his bloodline, the longer he fails at that, the more obsessive and the more desperate and violent and outrageous he becomes to achieve that. And that's where the danger really kind of comes in with the next film when we talk about it. I kind of can't wait. That's kind of why I played it like that. I'm trying to trick and tease the audience for the next episode. <laughs> good job. Good job. Someone, someone might think that you have a history of podcasting. Yeah, it's almost like I know what I'm doing. Kind of, sort of. Speaking of which, Court, tell the good people where they can find more of your musings on movies. <laughs> musings on movies. I'll have, to, I'll have to steal that sometime. Uh, yeah, easiest way to find me is through my main feed that is my network that I'm a proud member of for Legion Podcast. LegionPodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops that's your landing slash launching page that's where you're going to be able to get the feed or you can just listen to the episodes directly i'm in itunes i'm in stitcher um i know we're in google play music so 
somewhere, although I still don't know how the fuck that actually works. <laughs> Who does? Yeah. Um, you can find it out there. All the different podcatchers and aggregators that pull off the feeds, whether it's iTunes or anything else like that, you can find the show. And if you search for Cinema PsyOps online, you're going to find, well, either our Facebook group or uh, the logo for the show or in some way, shape or form. But you will find us out there if you do a search. We're definitely there. It's not hard to find the show. And if you're on Facebook, we have a group and we have a, a main page as well. I'm on Twitter as Quartz underscore PsyOp. And uh, I'm also on Instagram as Cinema PsyOps, although I don't really post to that very much, but there. I also have another show, which is, we were kind of trying to do it quarterly where we were going to do like switch it off where everybody has a different episode. Like, you know, we have three guys on the show and we were going to do each of us picks a movie and then we do a show on it. And we we're going to try and basically make it to where we each get four movies a year. But the scheduling is really difficult because I'm in the middle of the country in Omaha here in America. My other cohort, Boz, he's in England and the third of the trifecta, the witch is in Australia. We can't get any further apart without moving in one direction to get closer to the other. Oh, without one of you being on the fucking moon. Holy shit. <laughs> right. Scheduling is a nightmare with that show, but we're, we got a serious bromance going between the three of us. You know, it's, it's a little, it's a little disturbing. I think all of our wives may be a little jealous of it, but uh, that's obsessive cinema discourse. <laughs> that's also on Legion podcast. That show is a shitload of fun. Although none of us want to put in any work on it because we're primarily primary editors and producers on our other shows. So it just kind of becomes this loose bunch of guys hanging out in the clubhouse talking movies and obsessively ripping them apart and lovingly describing everything that we saw. Hey, an occasional sloppy podcast can be a hell of a lot of fun listening, man. <laughs> That's basically what we're banking on is we're doing this just as an excuse for us to hang out and talk because again, trifecta bromance there, but it still makes for good listening. A lot of people actually enjoy it and a few people that have that have talked to me actually like it more than my regular show, which breaks my heart that's that that cannot be possible no, I mean, actually, there's, there's no there's no way to break your heart is what i'm saying no oh just, yeah yeah right right no <laughs> I, I accept that i totally accept that i thought you were going to compliment my other show but i like the way you went with that instead well i was i was i took a, a step down that pathway and then realized no go for the bad joke <laughs> no it was a good joke because you really did just break my heart oh court you know i love you in a way that i would never allow you to touch me <laughs> likewise broad point back at you <laughs> Man, I cannot thank you enough for coming back on the show. I'm sorry it took so long. Um, I, I, I will actually say this in public. One of the reasons why it took us so long to do the second Coffin Joe film as a podcast here on The Bloody Pit is uh, I was a, a little reluctant because I felt that we had uh, hit the ball so out of so far out of the park with the first time, the first uh, episode we did together on the very first Coffin Joe film. I, I did not know that. Uh, I did not really think that we could climb that hill again. And um, I kind of faced I kind of faced that fear and realized that uh, I was being a moron and that I was putting too much weight on my own shoulders for uh, upholding uh, kind of a, a level of discourse that uh, I, I strive to get to with uh, discussions of movies of this type. And uh, you are the perfect foil for the, not just these films, but for that kind of discussion about these films. And I just worried that we wouldn't be able to do it again. And it sounds like I was right. I think we fucked this one up pretty badly. <laughs> Well, actually, truth be told, I was a little bit nervous about it, too, and I was apprehensive. So I wasn't pushing for us to do it because I was also like, man, that turned out really well. I yeah. don't know if we'll be able to touch on the topics. But now that now that we've kind of completed this and that weight is off our shoulders, I'm, of course, I'll have to see how the final edit turns out. But it feels to me like we built the foundation solidly and we have the framework with this one for the house that is Coffin Joe. And when we complete the siding and the insulation 
and everything with Embodiment of Evil. <laughs> we'll have a very nice, warm, comfortable place to podcast for the rest of the series of films that we'll be discussing <laughs> later on. That that was the most strained metaphor I have heard in a very long time. I'm impressed. That's what I do, man. I, I take that metaphor and I strain it and I just stretch <laughs> it out and I make it really work for me. <laughs> That was, oh God, that was beautiful. Court, thank you very much, man. Oh, a pleasure to be on the show once again. Thank you very much for uh, taking this journey through Coffin Joe films with me. I've been, I've, I, this is this is a joy, man. It's a joy. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am in the most sincerest of senses disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you should be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. How about a refreshing ice-cold drink by itself or with a snack? Cold drinks in all your favorite flavors are ready and waiting for you at the refreshment center. Stop in. Get the frosty zing you get only from a refreshing ice-cold drink. like to once again thank court of cinema psyops for coming on and uh well you know walking through another coffin joe film with me we will be getting to the third installment in the trilogy very soon but uh thank you to everyone who has listened to this episode this is the 75th episode of the bloody pit uh, we have a very stop and start way of doing the show and uh for that i apologize and you never can tell exactly what each episode is going to bring you who who knew exactly when we were going to get to the next Coffin Joe film? There are some things that we try to do on a regular basis. And speaking of that, next episode, uh, Troy will be back in the co-hosting seat 
for our next installment in the Universal 1940s Film Festival. Uh, yes, yeah, slowly working our way through all of the Universal horror films of the 1940s. Next up is the third Invisible Man film, Invisible Man. It's actually called Invisible Woman, uh, which is a bit of a... Uh, not really non-sequitur, but it does change things up considerably. So here in a couple of weeks, uh, we're stepping up the pace just a little bit here at the end of the year to fit in a couple of extra episodes where we can. So uh, Invisible Woman very soon. Glad you stuck around for this one. Episode 76 soon. And uh, once again, if you want to join us over on the Facebook page, you can. You'll hear announcements about the shows that are coming up over there. The the occasional piece of artwork or strange little post here, there, and yon. The blog is, of course, the bloody pit of Rod over on the World Wide Web. And uh, luckily, Court has already given you all his information. So thank you once again for listening. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Tacky in your chrome dip belt What's it gonna prove?